we feel like we're ready to start? Yeah. Oh, okay. And so, are you going to play the theme tune in? Okay, brilliant. Where does it go? <laughs> That'll do. Yeah, brilliant. Hello, I'm Andrew Mayle, and this is the debut episode of the Mojo Record Club, a place to bring together record lovers, musicians, crate diggers, writers, readers, and special guests, and share our love of classic albums, weird lost gems, and brand new revelations. My guests today are the Mojo editor, John Mulvey. Hello. And the brilliant Manchester-born composer, saxophonist, and poet, Alabaster de Plume, a.k.a. Gus Fairburn. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hello. Via the power of recorded sound, we'll have a few personal words from the great Patti Smith. But I just want to say it's extra special to have Gus here, who's released one of my and Mojo's albums of the year in the shape of gold, go forward in the courage of your love, to give it its full title. A brilliant, swirling, euphoric, cathartic record that brings together, to my ears, everything from sinewy, fellacuti-style funk exhortations to ethereal gospel jazz and collectivist post-punk lullabies. <laughs> and if it's okay with Gus, I think we should just hear maybe a little bit of that now, ah. just to get a sense of the vibe and the mood. Andrew, you're beautiful. Oh. <laughs> so we'll, so we'll play, a bit of, play a bit of gold, yeah? Now, Stars Are Lit, released by the International Anthem Recording Company. That was our producer, Suze, who'll be dropping in with details of the songs we're playing today. Thanks for having me in the room. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm um, among friends. That's good. That's yeah. the vibe we weren't, we're trying to get to. Yeah. I can feel a kind of um, a high energy. Slightly manic. Maybe. Yeah. You're, yes, you're bringing us one. down in a good way. Yeah. Though, Am know, I? Like, yeah. <laughs> Calming you, us down. Yeah. You I'm might not know that you're the right people. You might know it as, a, as an idea, but you might not know it inside the, of your body. But you, you, but you look in there and you will see that you are the right people. You're the perfect people for this moment. That's good to know. The best things you're going to do is probably going to happen because you responded to each other. Yeah. Yeah. And also, having someone like you, I thought you'd be able to give us some kind of benediction for the first one like this, yeah, and blessing. you just have. So it's, <laughs> like, it's amazing. Hey, it's... I know nothing. <laughs> I only work here. <laughs> Anytime, spirit. <laughs> you're doing so well, and it's tricky. And I love that you're doing it. You're doing very well. It's not always easy. And you're listening to the Mojo Record Club. I think it's a good opportunity to talk about the record you've brought in for us to listen to oh, today. Oh, wow, yeah. Yoko Kano and the Seatbelts. Yeah. And her soundtrack to the 1998 anime series Cowboy Bebop. Yeah. Cowboy Bebop is about a group of travelling bounty hunters in space. 
Perhaps we should hear a little clip of the series and the music. Have a listen. I think it's time to blow this scene, get everybody in the stuff together. Okay, three, two, one, let's jam. Kakano and the Seatbelts, Tank, released by Victor Entertainment. So, Gus, when did you when did you first discover this music? Well, I was watching the telly, but this is one of the reasons why I was because uh, I don't watch telly. But it was back in the day when I was living a different life. What year would it, it was actually? It was I was probably actually in the nineties. Right, when I was a kid watching telly, and somebody was asking me, "Oh, how did you get into jazz?" You know, recently because obviously I've been doing these interviews, and then like. Hmm, let me see. Hmm, was it uh, John Coltrane? And was it, oh no, what is the actual truth? Uh, and I go, let's, no, come on, let's be vulnerable and tell the honest truth. And I thought, no, may, well, maybe it was Captain Beefheart. <laughs> no, no, there's something, no, there's something before then that's really true. What is it, Gus? And it's like, because I was watching a cartoon. The other day, I was watching Thich Nhat Hanh. Do you know who he is? No. He is a Buddhist Zen master. He's not around anymore. I've been, I've been working through something in myself. I've been um, in a lot of emotional pain. And I've been working through something. I'm learning a big lesson. And I find his stuff really helpful. I just watch him on, on YouTube. I don't have his books or whatever. But he was saying, someone asked him a question about... Um, uh, do in do, does in Buddhism do like someone was trying to teach me that Buddhists believe in hell that if you don't do right that after um, you go you get sent to hell and, and when you die and you'll suffer and be punished and is that is that true or is it is it like a sort of way of teaching uh, something else that's true you know. And he was saying, and his answer was about how that's a kind of popular uh, thing, thing, this idea that retribution, that we, that we must learn to do things the right way for fear of retribution, you know, that there's some sort of strange hell in that, in where if you were a liar, they will cut out your tongue and stuff like that. And it's just nonsense. But it's a way of like popularizing, it's like it has a purpose, you know, in this world, the sort of popular, even though it's not the real teaching, you know. Yeah. It can, these, po- this popular stuff, that, it, that it's the simple ideas that's not really the real teaching can help us to lead us towards the real teaching yeah and that's what made me think of this thing. and this is the role that um the music in cowboy bebop had that someone might say oh well that's not real jazz it's the soundtrack yeah, to yeah, an anime yeah, series yeah, yeah, yeah. but this is the music that led you towards yeah other jazz musicians yeah, like yeah. john coltrane or yeah, something and other music generally yeah and to play, because I didn't play the saxophone then. I didn't play the saxophone until like seven years after that or something like 10 years. So is it like. the saxophone sound on this soundtrack that kind of something clicked when and you I heard it? I think it's it? fun. Yeah. 
personality of this woman, Yoko Kano, is in there yeah. with this playful, curious uh, joy that led me towards this kind of music. Otherwise, it, it was back then, it was the 90s, yeah, and I was like a goth. I mean, I obviously look at me, I'm still a goth. <laughs> oh my God. But um, I was not, I would never have listened to any serious jazz because it's just too serious and clever and boring. Yeah. And this music is playful. But it was fun, it, yeah. you know, and it was part of a cartoon and I identified with some of the characters and there's some wonderful things in there about gender, I think. There's a character who, and it, it, there was an openness in there for, in that that I mean, it was it was also what is you know it's old and it's silly but it's um but it's uh it was joyful and curious and fun and 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 that and i loved listening to that music did you did it make you want to go away and find out more about yoko kano because she sounds like an amazing figure you know is he i think she began composing on piano at the age of two yeah, and she lived in a house with like no telly, no radio, no record player, and yeah. just communicated her feelings through music. Yes, yes, which is astonishing. And they based one of the characters on her, apparently, Ed, Radical Edward, who is like, and they never know if uh, Edward is a is a boy or a girl, and 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 is this genius of um, on the computer, and it's just incredible the the the, the behavior of this personality. But apparently, it's based on Yoko Kano. Uh, the other thing I was reading, which I thought was fascinating, is that because it goes against this idea of musician as a kind of authorship or or a revealing of personality, because she was she got loads of her work because of her ability to place herself inside a character or an era oh. and emulate the the sort of feelings of that character or that period. So she's not writing from a position of kind of creative authorship. She's yeah. almost kind of they. What did they call her? There, there was a kind of the, she. They call her the master of the mundane, which wow. doesn't mean boring. It kind of means in that idea of the everyday Every that day. she can she can just use her music to just create environments wow. or create personalities around wow. particular characters. Yeah, which is absolutely fascinating. I want to I want to work with her. I want to meet <laughs> I want to meet her. John, were you hearing this music for the first time? Like uh, I must was? confess, I was. Yeah, one of my children told me, I, "I've played you Tank." <laughs> you know that, and I went, actually you haven't. It's like, but um, he he loves it. But but he's also listened to a lot of jazz as well via yeah. me. I mean, I think one of the things what you were talking about, I, I see it in color a lot. I see, it, it sounds like day glow jazz to me. Yeah. I was thinking yeah. of like, and it's kind of. I remember when I was first getting into jazz, a lot of the aesthetic that I was sort of. Uh, queuing into was that kind of blue note sleeve aesthetic those very muted colors very cool yeah. very black very, and white very black and white you know curls curls of smoke in the air that that whole kind of round midnight kind of aesthetic yeah and this is something radically different it's hyper real it, it's uh, it's ultra bright but it's still it, i think it it makes me think a lot about authenticity yeah in jazz music and authenticity in music in general really because because the normal signifiers of jazz and serious jazz, mm. it kind of doesn't have them. It doesn't have long credits about who plays that sax solo on yeah. there. It yeah. doesn't have that kind of uh, sort of imprint of authorship and, and musicianly kind of um, uh, separation, if you like. Mm. It's, it's much more of a kind of hyper mess. 
Absolutely. Mm. But but that but then I listened to it and I got the same pleasure from listening to that as I would listen to a Duke Ellington or Bill Bill Strayhorn kind of collaboration because it seemed entirely kind of consistent with that type of jazz music in a way that maybe some of the things that we take seriously as jazz music now aren't necessarily in that tradition it seems Mm. critically part of a grand tradition really there's i mean i was the thing about that's interesting about japanese jazz like post-war japanese jazz is they placed an incredible amount of importance on ba on the art of emulation of like not having their own style this is kind of like Jazz and Japanese jazz in like the 1950s and 60s, not having their own style, but been a, being able to copy someone else's wow. style perfectly. Yeah, and obviously that develops in the 60s and 70s, and it becomes more free and more wild. Yeah. But when they were starting out, it's almost like the American musicians were like their their sensei, you know, like their teachers mm. in a way. So their ability to copy it to within an exact note of say the you know the sounds of Mingus or Art Blakey or something was a skill. And that seems to have a lot to do with what Yoko Kano is doing with Mm. with these soundtracks for these anime that she's doing. Mm. Kind of there's there's a creativity and there's a a brilliance there. But it's also about saying, I can do this style, I can do that style. It's interesting you said authenticity, um, but we're talking about like um, copying. Yeah. But then it's authenticity to, to what? And is it authenticity to the joy that you have or the, the crazy spirits that yeah, you have? Yeah, that's, that's I mean, it. that's a really good point because it is authentically fun. It makes yeah. you happy when yeah, you yeah, listen yeah, to yeah, it. It's, yeah. it's kind of, it doesn't sound cold. It doesn't yeah. sound fake. Yeah. There, e- there is a spirit to it that is believable. It is not that culture. That is Japanese people playing American culture. Yeah. It's not their culture at all and yet it is it, it feels very authentically well i guess the playful. point is that the american culture was massively important after the war because it kind of it came to sort of represent you know a kind of positivity and all the things that they'd lost in the war the things that they were sort of you know they placed an incredible amount of importance on mm. american culture it's you know especially jazz mm. you know, but so, yeah. it's also hyper real isn't it yeah. isn't it it's it's kind of, it's kind of like uh, there's an analog to the visual arts as well in, yeah. the, in that like if you exactly copy a photograph it it's it becomes an entity in itself. Yeah. It, it mm. has its own value r- rather than one that's only just analogous to the original photo. Yoko Kano and the Seatbelts, Memory. Released by Victor Entertainment. Where did you go from there? In what kind of jazz did you want to discover? I went here? to Captain Beefheart after that. Did you? Yeah, yeah. That's not a natural step. No. How does that happen? I don't know. Yeah, someone. I can't remember who, because I was living quite an, a strange, isolated life. Mm. Um, but someone uh, suggested Captain Beefheart. Ah, I'd have to do some work to find out what that was. But the, and then it's after Rim that I went into the proper old stuff. Yeah. Um, Monk is my favourite, still my favourite. Yeah. Of course. But um, What is it that chimes with Monk? What's it so special about? It's a his... relief to hear the, uh, the honesty of the dissonance. Yeah. 
uh, and um, it's and it's and it's it's playful the way the way that he's got between those, and he's he's expressing his mastery through the unusual sounds, the dissonance, but it and it's and it's but it's it's also childish. Yeah. So it's, there's the mastery that's also childish because he's still playful. So a lot of similarities with Yoko yeah, Kenner, yeah, then yeah, yeah. the playfulness, the childishness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And with Beefheart, when yeah. you put it like that. I mean, do yeah. you consider Beefheart to be jazz? Well, I don't know. I don't know if I'm... What is jazz? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> those elements that you're drawn to, kind of uh, a playfulness, a kind of a, a willingness to kind of... Mm you know, inject fun yeah. into your music. I don't feel qualified just to define it. Yeah. Because uh, I think it comes from not, it's not my culture, so I can't say what it is. But I can, I can know, I, I, I feel like ish towards it, you know, ish, it's jazzy-ish something. Yeah. But what does that mean, you know? And then people use words like spiritual as if that's a, you know, it's like... <laughs> Spiritual jazz. Yeah. Well, and how it's do we probably define been used in people writing about yeah. your own music. I was about to say I'm a guilty journalist here. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. But like, yeah, and it, uh, I think, yeah, we could start talking about that. But it's a different chat. You're listening to the Mojo Record Club. So the things that like we've talked about in terms of Yoko Kano, but also Beefheart and Monk, there's a there's a daftness there. There's a playfulness there. There's a willingness to, yeah. you know, not ascribe to the rules. Living is a daft thing. To yeah. Do. Living is absurd. And uh, it's a relief to hear that, to, to see it expressed. In music. Yeah. yeah. That sort of daftness, the absurdity way, of life. In the work. Yeah, it is. I mean, does, does all this make sense to you? Yeah. Oh, this? No. When, <laughs> or, when, when you were just talking about um, not feeling qualified to define what jazz is, yeah. do you feel as a kind of, uh, do you feel an interloper in jazz? Do you feel that you're appropriating by being a jazz musician in any way? Um, it depends. There will be situations where I can feel like, yeah, I'm appropriating, but I don't feel it generally. I'm just getting on with my stuff. And, uh, you know, a certain chord progression, whatever, is, yeah. is handy yeah. in that scenario. But if um, I just make sure I'm honest, authentic in, in that time with people. Sometimes people use certain phrases to sell my stuff. And now and then I think, mm, I better keep an eye on that. Yeah. But I'm not actually saying that myself but when something is spoken on my behalf sometimes i'm responsible for that but yeah i yeah i don't think so i don't feel like i'm right. not right now but thank you for asking <laughs> <laughs> I, I i'm gonna keep checking and i might right and i might make some changes there's different yeah there's different feelings at different times do you have any um tracks that you go back to from um cowboy bebop or do you have kind of I don't know, a, a lesson that you took away from the record, like one abiding lesson, you know, where you thought, that's, I learned this from listening to this record and, watch, and watching the anime, and that's really important, and it's something that's kind of always stayed with me. Well, it's probably one of the reasons why I went and got 
a saxophone. But like someone um, left a clarinet at my house, you know. And you kind of do these silly impressions of stuff. You know? Yeah. But then it's actually fun, you know, because I was playing electric guitar at the time in a rock band. I wouldn't, you know, but then I've got that kind of fun idea of play f- like of of, yeah. of jazz that doesn't have to be, you know, the the way that like pop culture has seen had seen jazz. This is before we've had, you know, this is before like the resurgence of jazz in London and stuff, and the sort of stereotype of the of the uh, like very intellectual boring oh yeah nonsense yeah um so yeah i probably it probably is one of the reasons why i got that instrument you know did it didn't it promise something playful i think so yeah but it is um but it's more sharp uh, uh, the improvisation, because I I was doing recital stuff. You know, I don't do recital stuff now. Yeah, it's like oh, you had to be you for it to be what it was, and this moment will never come again. And this is our time, and this is blah blah blah. Back then, I was making just rock music that is very specifically. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. Very precise. Very, and it was very, it was very playful, very fun. Dun 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 dun. Different time signatures and stuff, but it was recital stuff. And I do have a respect for recital stuff, and I probably will do recital stuff one day. Yeah. Again, but that idea that you could have the skill to make um, improvisation. Is uh, it's more it's more cutting, isn't it? It's more clear. It's more like uh, this is going to happen now. It's more sharp. Mm. It's like bang, uh, and that's that's a thrill. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But one of the interesting things in comparison with Cowboy Bebop is that that doesn't sound like remotely improvised music to me. That sounds yeah, yeah. that sounds like rigorously mapped yeah. out true, idea of yeah. what jazz music could be in, but, the, in this yet, very isolated it way. Me, it led me to that stuff. Yeah. That 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 is genuinely because it is, yeah. Because it sounds like they've gone a bit like you know, um, Moondog. Yeah, yeah. And he writes it; it's, it's recital one hundred percent. Yeah. But he's composed it so that it sounds improvised. Mm. But it's yeah. a composition, and you will get it right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It sounds like that kind of vibe, isn't it? Definitely. I mean, it doesn't sound like live music, does no, it? No, uh, it, no. It, it, I guess it's how much you think about jazz as a live music, as a live, uh, uh, with with an element of risk to it. There, it is, does, there isn't an element, element of risk to Cowboy Bebop. It doesn't sound live to me now, back then, compared to, like, <laughs> yeah. what I was listening yeah. to, it did sound live. Because it sounded I mean? exciting, and because the saxophone like, goes yeah, off. What yeah. are they going to do? This yeah, right. But this, that, yeah. blah, 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 blah. I couldn't tell that that was not, you know, that you know, the way that's been done. But it doesn't sound like that to me now. But it was the way. It's the it's a way through, and I thought of this partly because this is what you're doing in Mojo. You know, you you're working on giving people a way f- from pop uh, culture, what is generally seen. At least this is how I understand it. This is what you're working on, giving people a a doorway into deeper things. Absolutely, that's perfectly put, yeah. yeah. And I think that's exactly how the record works. And I think 
There is a real. I mean, I, that the the track Space Lion. I don't know if you know it by individual tracks. Oh yeah, tracks. yeah, yeah. Yoko Kano and the Seatbelts. Space Lion, released by Victor Entertainment. I mean, I found that absolutely stunning. Like a real yeah. beauty to it, a real invention yeah. to it. And the initial tracks are, as you say, they're very kind of they're, you know, they're clearly riffing on certain styles of jazz. Yeah. But a track like that just comes out of nowhere and feel and has a real sort of beauty and invention mm. to it. That mm. I was, I mean, I'm so pleased that you introduced me to the records. So mm -hmm. I was able to hear a track like that because that that was absolute joy. It's been. Absolutely delightful to talk to you, Gus. Um, I love chatting with you. I'm, I'm happy to oh, be thank you, Gus. Yeah. Excellent. Perfect. Nice. <laughs> yes, you are. Yeah, did you know it? This is the only moment you get to live. This one, the one that you're in. Welcome to it. You're doing very well. You're listening to the Mojo Record Club. So, John, how has your week been and what have you been listening to? My week's been a bit manic, actually, Andrew, because Mojo is in the process of moving offices. So um, I've been going through a lot of old books and records and wondering whether we really need them anymore. And I've concluded we mostly do need most of them. But uh, as with most weeks, I've been listening to Neil Young. <laughs> <laughs> um, when I'm not listening... Well, I think one of, the, one of the main things that I need to remember in this podcast is not to talk all the time about A, The Grateful Dead, and B, Neil Young. But mm. I do have a pretext this week because there is a quote-unquote new Neil Young record coming out today, uh, if this is called, the day. Called Toast. Called Toast, yeah. What so, does that mean, quote-unquote new? Because it's not actually new. It's, it's been sat in the archives for 20 years. Oh. So it's a record that he scrapped 20 years ago wow. that's been this kind of... Uh, cult rumour among Neil Young fans for the intervening years. Wow. And, and as is the way of Neil Young, he's promised to release it multiple times over that period and never got round to it. And then at the last moment decided to chuck it out this summer. And it's great, basically. It's a, it's a lost Crazy Horse record. And um, if, you're, if you're a Neil Young fan, then you like the Crazy Horse trudge, I suspect. But what's a bit different about this one is that it's the, it was actually replaced on the official release schedule by a record that he made with Booker T and the MGs, which uh, it, in the way of these things wasn't actually that good. Um, <laughs> but one of the strange things about it is that the record, the, the tracks that didn't really swing very well and felt very laboured with, with um, the MGs actually are weirdly loose and groovy with, with Crazy Horse in a way that you, w you wouldn't normally imagine Crazy Horse to play. It's quite an odd record. It's, it's weird because I was reading about it and it doesn't... Neil's description of it doesn't sound anything like your description <laughs> yeah. of it because he says a sadness permeates the recording. It's just the sound of the record is murky and dark and fat, which sounds fantastic, but it sounds quite different from yeah. what you're saying. All it takes is a little shade Standing in the light of love Standing in the light of love Neil Young, 
Standing in the Light of Love, released on Reprise. There's a lightness of touch to some of those tracks musically, where there's a, there, I don't know, I always, I always think, basically a lot of the words that I use to de- describe Crazy Horse often sound pejorative. Yeah. Like plodding and trudging and that kind of thing, and yeah. as if they're wearing leaden boots. But I always think that one of the great joys of that band is that they make those into creative assets yeah but actually they just hear sound a little bit lighter on their feet and it is really nicely recorded and it's it's a varied record i think there is a sadness there because he's talked about it going uh, describing a time of problems in a relationship which he subsequently kind of brushed under the carpet by releasing a much more uh conventionally soppy record in the shape of are you passionate and this one feels a bit grittier in that in that aspect but it's a it's a lovely record and i i always think that people always land on the idea of lost neil young albums as being things like homegrown and um, chrome dreams and stuff from the 70s yeah but i think this proves that actually he was making huge amounts of amazing music and ditching it Ditch, you know, is, that, is that a pun ditching no it isn't actually it is <laughs> i i just think in neil young language permanently andrew yeah <laughs> um, are you are you a neil young fan gus uh i yeah, he's lovely. Yeah, but <laughs> <laughs> well, I used to be well into him. Very yeah, loads, loads, loads. But yeah. I've, I've not listened to him for ages. Yeah. But he's really nice. When you th- when you make something like there is a time for each tune, I think. Yeah, and um, like you were saying, ditching, and it's like the poet Mayakovsky says. Um, if you're going to make something great, you're going to have to throw away many very fine things. Yeah. And it's not about when, like, I mean, it's not about is it good enough, I shall put it out now. Yeah. It's about is this the time for this piece? Like the tunes that I've got that people are listening to now that we released in 2020, the instrumentals, yeah. were many of those were available for 10 years beforehand. Yeah. And nobody was listening to them then. Yeah. You know, which, which I could have received as a message that they are not important uh, at all, but it was just not the time for them, yeah. you know, and it is interesting that he but, brings this thing down. But I think that's a really good way of looking at what we're going to try and do with this podcast as we go through the weeks. As Absolutely. Well, that, that we'll try and dig out those things that have been neglected and then uh, ignored. Yeah. And Oh, really? Yeah. This is what you're seeing. Yeah. Yeah. You want to discover things for people. You want to bring light to things for for which the time might be now. Absolutely. Yeah. Interesting. Thank you for doing that. Um, me, I've been listening to um, Nick Cave's Psalms, which is it's quite an odd little affair. It's a short album, it's 23 minutes. Um, it's on Spotify, but it's also released on 10-inch vinyl. And it's a collection of Nick's spoken word prose poems with kind of additional heavily reverbed atmospheres from Warren Ellis. And it's kind of part of, I don't know what you think, John or Gus, it's it's kind of part of Cave's repositioning as a kind of philosopher seer for Generation X and Millennials, kind of in part with like what he's been writing in the Red Hand Files. It's kind of a you can listen to it and think, oh, it's kind of like a collection of leader in a way. It's kind of Cave as this kind of uncertain in the kind of uncertain monastic communion with himself. He's sort of ruminating on loss and forgiveness and the modern role of prayer. And sometimes I'd listen to it and I find it incredibly powerful. 
you know, his, his, his words are kind of, I don't know if you know the, the Welsh poet uh, R.S. Thomas. Yeah. Very, very familiar to that. It's someone kind of dealing with his own ideas of faith and whether he believes or not. At other times, it, it kind of can feel quite portentous. But there was and a particular time I listened to and it had me in tears. And I think it's all of those things. It's, a, it's kind of that mix of things. It's kind of, it's contradictory and it's kind of, it's moving and it's powerful. And occasionally it's a bit up itself. But I like that mix yeah. is, that is going on in it. Nick Cave, Such Things Should Never Happen. Released on Bad Seed Limited with Goliath Entertainment. Such things should never happen, but we die. The swallow finds an oak to nest her young, defenceless between the earth and the sky, uncounted beneath the vast indifferent sun. A mother holds her baby to her breast. Yeah, it's you've got to be in the right mood. Yeah. <laughs> so the first the first time I played it, I thought it was very portentous. And yeah. I struggled with what it. What does that mean, portentous? Good question. It means that it kind of carries itself with a kind of a weight of its own value, you know, kind of like oh, I'm, I'm, I'm throwing out some heavy stuff. It's kind here. of low key bombast. Oh. Yeah, low key bombast is a nice way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah, and that kind of, I mean, I've not heard it yet. Carry on, you were speaking. No, it's all right. I think one of the things that's interesting to me about it is that it's. It's the next step on that progress towards that kind of monastic purity that he's been working towards for about 25 years, ever since there was that kind of pivot from Old Testament fury to New Testament analyst kind of thing. There was that point where he wrote um, uh, a a preface to... It wasn't the entire New Testament. I can't remember which book it was. It was sometime, it was sometime around the Boatman's Call at that point in sort of 96, 97 or something like that, where I think he became quite analytical about the content of the New Testament. It was the, it was the King John Bible, wasn't it? Is that it? what it was? It was, yeah, yeah. It was the, the King John kind of version of, yeah. the, of the Bible mm. that he went forward for. Whereas now he seems to inhabit that role more fully rather than obs- observing it from the outside. And sometimes that can seem portentous. And at other times he he inhabits so com- in it so convincingly, and I think his kind of philosophical insights are so useful that it becomes a valuable additional part of what he does. I mean, I think I think there's a lot of things of the various the various strands of Nick Cave's career kind of collapsing in on themselves on this. So yeah. the, the written word stuff, the soundtrack stuff, the work that the more ambient stuff that he does with Warren Ellis, it all seems to be coming together here in quite an interesting way that on one listen sounds like an afterthought and a side project. And on another listen sounds the actual heart of what he does now. Mm. I, I like the fact that it seems uncertain. I think that's the thing I like about it. That It's not kind of, rooted in questions of religious belief it's him kind of throwing around various ideas and sort of pondering questions to himself but uh, that's like, that's the uh, that's the uh, essence of the red hand files yeah, isn't absolutely. it that basically he's answering readers questions by say, by saying something quite useful but also saying figure it out for yourself one way or another there isn't one certain mm. answer to what you're what you're wondering does he consider himself to be a philosopher I don't. I, he probably wouldn't use no. the term. He probably wouldn't, right? Yeah. So I think if a journalist said to him, "Do you consider yourself to be a philosopher?" I can guess what the answer yeah. would be. Yeah. But there is that question of kind of you know taking on the big questions and taking on issues of 
belief and, and faith and also questions of sort of, you know, dealing with loss and surviving great loss and, and then bringing it forward and thinking, what does that teach you about life? Yeah, and so there are similarities that you can draw, but no, I don't. I think he would he would run a mile if he. I'm used just that wondering how, because you said a bit up itself earlier. Yeah, I wonder how we get there. What kind of aspect of it makes it like that? There are times when I like how he engages with the certain questions, and but there's other times where I feel it does take itself a little bit too seriously, and it's kind of. I think one of the things that people like about Cave's work, even mm. at its in its darkest moments is the fact that there is a sense of humor there. Yeah. And I feel that maybe that's lacking here. Is and in it? and in missing out that sense of humor, you feel you worry, you question how serious he is taking yeah. all this. You know? Yeah. But as an ongoing project and as, as something that kind of raises questions about all those ideas, it's interesting. I mean, it's interesting that there are a lot of similarities, I think, between what he's doing and how I think Patty Smith, how how she's regarded. They're both artists who have survived great loss and kind of and we've come to feel that they have something that they can teach us about life. There was something that just occurred to me that I'd really like to ask us. Yeah. Because because when you were talking about um questioning Andrew's idea about when he felt that Cave sounded up himself. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things about that is is that so, it's quite hard sometimes to listen to spoken word on record without getting that sense of portentousness. And I wondered, no. because obviously you use spoken word quite a lot on, in your music, yeah. how you avoid that. Obviously, there's a playfulness and mm. there's a spirit in what you do, which is quite different from what Cave does. Yeah. But I was interested when you listen to the work that you do and mm. how you approach that spoken word, whether you're ever conscious of those kind of issues. I don't know if it's for me to say that I do avoid that. And there will be many, I mean, there's, there's billions of people in this world. For many of them, they will hear me doing, don't forget your precious and go, this guy's completely up his own ass. <laughs> <laughs> and um, maybe they are right. But, uh, but for some people, it clicks. I don't know if it's for me to say that I do avoid that. But I am... Um, there will be some things that I do and that some things that I avoid with that in mind. But if I have, if I am concerned with how I look, how, how I seem, if I'm worried about myself, then myself is in the way of the song. Yeah. Yeah. If I am um, focused on those who just now, um, Actually, before we started this, I said, I wonder who they are. And you looked at me and it's like, what is he talking about? Is this strange person on about? Well, you didn't really look at me like that, but it's like, that was that. <laughs> but I, I, I thought that for you. What do I mean when I say that? And what I mean is, I wonder who those people are who will be listening to what we're going to say today. And I love to wonder who they are because they are someone yeah. and they're living a life and they're suffering and living and learning. And they're out there and living is tough and they are doing it. And we are going to speak to them. Yeah. They get one thing in this life and it's their time. They're going to spend their time listening to what we say. I'm going to think about them. So if I want to avoid getting up myself 
the answer is certainly, surely, those people who I'm addressing, I love them. Uh, they're, they're, each, each other is the answer. Yeah. I find, well, I find each other helpful. Well, that's, no, that's a really good point. And also, I think the thing that you said in the past about how a lot of the time the questions that you're asking or the things that you're saying are addressed to yourself mm, yeah. as, as much as they are to a listener. Yeah, yeah. And I think kind of you could probably apply the same to what Cave is doing, that these are questions that he's asking of himself mm. and, and he does not have the answers. Yeah, yeah. you're doing so well and it's tricky and I love that you're doing it you're doing very well it's not always easy and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club we wanted to give you something extra special for the very first episode of the Mojo Record Club the current issue of Mojo has an exclusive interview with one of our most visionary musicians Patti Smith written by Andrew Mail. As a bonus in this first episode, Andrew found a fascinating section of his interview with Patty that couldn't fit into the magazine. He did speak to her for three hours after all. Here, a discussion on the French poet Arthur Rimbaud moves into a moving conversation about remembrance, family and her changing mission statement as an artist. Enjoy. There's a line from Rambo, isn't there, which I think kind of is applicable as well in terms of what we've been talking about. Is it like, I'm here for a purpose, the purpose changes? Yes, and you could say that about, again, Bob Dylan, Picasso. You know, yeah, I could say it myself. I was here for a purpose. In the 70s, I felt my purpose was to create space for the next generation or for my own generation that hadn't found the door to walk through, you know, to break down barriers. And then in the 80s, I had a different mission. I had a mission to raise my children and to write and study and, uh, you know, on and on through life. Once you lost Fred, then does it, does your mission become almost an act of remembrance or memorialization well, or? At first it was survival and also as a mother to, you know, raise two young children who had lost their father um, to find a new way of making a living. And so my mission at first was almost tactical, you know. So my mission was first really survival and to also to, you know, negotiate the, my responsibilities being, you know, a widow and also I had also lost my brother yeah. later. So it was a very, very difficult time. And then really... It was step by step. All the missions were, were, I would say, practical, but always wanting to do the best I could to, you know, um, to um, do work in remembrance of Fred, to um, take care of my family. Then I had to step back into public life, which I had been out of for, I don't know, 16 years. And so... Um, you know, that was the next mission was to reconnect uh, with uh, performing and with the people. But I had I had uh, good support. I had my band, Michael Stipe. Uh, I met Michael Stipe, and he was very supportive. He actually went out on my first tour in 
16 years just to be there. Wow. Just to, just to be supportive. And, um, and Bob Dylan, um, Allen Ginsberg spoke to Bob Dylan about, you know, um, giving me some support. And Bob Dylan uh, um, invited us to, to um, tour with him, which was my first tour since Okay, thank you, Patty. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, bye-bye. Thank you, too. Are you a Patty Smith fan, Gus? I don't know her stuff so well, you know. All right. That's There's okay. a lot of things I don't know. Yeah. You're so we good at this. You're so good at this, man. <laughs> <laughs> Fireflies, released by Arista, written by Patti Smith and Oliver Ray. You've been listening to John Mulvey, Gus Fairburn and myself, Andrew Mayle. Um, and now we'd like to hear from you. If you have any questions, requests for records we should discuss or guests you'd like us to have on the show, please get in touch. Um, send your voice notes and emails to mojoreaders at bowermedia.co.uk. That was the Mojo Record Club. Hope to see you at the next one. 
you can all join in. Look in the episode description for full details of how to sign up for the next episode. I hope they're all right, whoever they are. They're alive now. The people who are going to hear it, they're alive now. Yeah. They're doing something. You've been listening to The Mojo Record Club with me, Alabaster de Plume. Thank you for living. It's tricky sometimes. Why don't you trade those guitars for shuffles? Mm-hmm.